The other evening, Guy was speaking with you about the story of Siddhartha's awakening under the Bodhi tree. And he was speaking about some of the obstacles that Siddhartha encountered in that journey of awakening. And this evening I'd like to speak a little bit more about what happened in that journey of Siddhartha's and the way that he came to communicate or to express what he understood to be the truth. The heart of the Buddhist teaching really lies in what he came to understand that evening. And it is expressed in the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, which are very simple truths about life, about all life. They begin with the simple truth of the acknowledgement of pain, of unsatisfactoriness, of suffering that there is in life. It's an acknowledgement that there is a cause of suffering. Also the acknowledgement that there is an end to suffering. There is a possibility of a cessation of suffering. In liberation, in enlightenment, in profound understanding. And that there is also a path to the end of suffering. These truths which so much lie at the heart of the Buddhist tradition, I think are truths which also lie at the heart of our own journey here. Why do we undertake this kind of journey? It seems that the quest or the pilgrimage that is at the heart of all spiritual traditions, it is a quest towards happiness, towards peace, towards intimacy, towards freedom. It is also a journey of discovering how to leave behind us an ocean of sorrow, unhappiness, and separation. In the Buddhist tradition, this pilgrimage is described as waking up from a dream. If we look into our own yearnings and motivations that bring us here, why, why do we do this? Why do we choose to meditate? Why do we go through some of the very difficult valleys of a retreat? Why do we devote ourselves in this way to trying to deepen in wisdom? We are not alone in this journey. Sometimes it's really amazing to appreciate how many countless people over centuries have sought this same journey, this same kind of solitude in mount on mountains, in deserts, in caves, undertaking a very similar kind of pilgrimage that we are undertaking here. Now, would we do this if we felt that there was in our lives an abundance of happiness, a profound sense of completeness, of peace and understanding, 
Probably not. It seems that the enticement of this journey for us, and for everyone who does it, that the enticement is really twofold. One direction in, of this journey is the kind of magnetism we feel towards happiness, towards intimacy, towards the possibility of freedom. And it seems that the other motivating force often for us in this journey is really a very heartfelt wish to bring about the end of suffering and the end of sorrow. So coming to this first noble truth, what is sorrow? What is suffering? There are obviously so very many different dimensions to suffering and sorrow. Some of that is intrinsic to life. It is, as Yanai was speaking about last night, the life condition that applies to all of us, of aging, of sickness, of death, of separations that happen. But there are also, obviously, dimensions of suffering which are not intrinsic to life, but which are born instead of misunderstanding. There are the dimensions of sorrow and pain that we sometimes encounter in our bodies, our relationship to our bodies, our relationship to our minds, our relationship to our hearts. There's the dimensions of sorrow that we find in loneliness and confusion and conflict. And there are deeper levels of suffering and sorrow in our lives which have to do with the pain of separateness. The pain of feeling apart, the pain of disconnection. Sometimes the separation or the, the apartness we feel from other people or from the world around us. Sometimes the more obvious levels of suffering that comes when we feel separated from what we long for in terms of happiness and freedom. Sometimes there's a very obvious suffering that comes when we feel separated from getting simply what we want. There's also this, the suffering that is involved in feeling separate from ourselves, feeling somehow banished from any kind of authenticity or freedom within our own being. Now, the Buddha described this sense of separation or banishment or disconnection as samsara, a kind of perpetual wandering, a kind of endless and restless wandering through life and through existence as if in a dream. It's a wandering where there's always a looking for something, a place to be at ease, a place to be at home, a place of authenticity. It's looking for a place of peace, a sanctuary of well-being. And yet much of our wandering in life, it seems, rarely brings us to that place. And so we wander on and on, undertaking so many different kinds of journeys. The journeys we make to pick up one kind of identity or role, find it unsatisfying and put it down. The journeys we make through the whole variety of different experiences that it is possible for us to have in this life, 
the excitements, the thrills, the gratifications, the successes, the attainments, the achievements, unfortunately often finding that they're not quite what we were looking for. And the Buddha also spoke about waking up from this perpetual wandering and discovering an, an, a profound ultimate stillness of being where there is an end to the repetitive cycles of discontent. He spoke about waking up from this wandering and discovering a vastness of being, of happiness, of peace, of compassion, an inner freedom, a place of being awake. And sometimes the Buddha described this point of waking up from the dream as a way of extinguishing the fire, extinguishing the fire that moves the kind of restlessness that always leads us to be looking for something we find difficult to discover. Now this point of waking up is not a magical process. It's not that somebody comes along and waves a magic wand. This point of waking up is not necessarily a process of time. It's certainly not a result of more thinking. And it is not just an experience. Rather, this waking up is born of clear and wise and profound understanding that illuminates misunderstanding. In Buddhist teaching, there is never the encouragement to strive for enlightenment or to strive for Buddhahood as some distant destination. The thread of immediacy is one that runs through all of Buddhist teaching. Where do we wake up? Right where we are. When do we wake up? In the moment we are in. Where do we discover what it means to be a Buddha when we cease being a non-Buddha. <laughs> the point of wisdom is that it unmasks delusion. It unmasks misunderstanding. And to know deeply the end of suffering, we also need to just as equally deeply understand the cause of suffering so that we no longer consent to be a participating player in the cycle of constructing states of suffering. Now, the second noble truth of the Buddha is that there is indeed a cause of suffering. Now, this may seem very obvious to you. The first time I heard this, I thought this was the most remarkable piece of information I'd ever heard. Up to that point, I'd actually always thought that suffering was just, you know, something that happened if you were unlucky or uh, you were in the wrong place at the wrong time um, or somebody else made it happen to you. You know, it never occurred to me, actually, that there was a cause of suffering that could be understood. The Buddha said that the cause of suffering is tanha or craving. And tanha is sometimes translated as being unquenchable or unslakable thirst. Now, I think sometimes when we hear that, 
we feel we can feel some resistance to this teaching in a lot of ways we actually prefer to externalize suffering and actually to make the cause of suffering really complex it seems easier to externalize the cause of suffering you know sometimes it feels both easier and more satisfying to blame um, or to avoid because when we can blame or fixate the cause of suffering as outside ourselves you know we can get really engaged in a real frenzy of activity of doing of fixing which makes us feel very secure you know we have things to solve things to get rid of things to get this is actually a very safe position for us this position of the doer and the perfecter what we don't always see of course is how very busy and agitated that position is and that that very busyness and agitation is actually the nature of samsara of looking for something in a separate moment that we cannot find in this one or believe we can't find in this one sometimes too we feel it's just simply too simplistic to say that craving is a cause of suffering I mean we could probably all make really long lists of things that cause suffering that are a cause of pain or conflict of sorrow in our own lives there's all the things we don't have and want all the things that we have and don't want there's the busyness of our lives that we're sure causes us suffering there's the noisy neighbor we ended up sitting beside that we're pretty sure causes us suffering there's our critical mother or mother-in-law that causes us suffering there's the countless things that can go wrong and do go wrong in our lives that seem to cause us suffering in fact sometimes it feels like our world is filled with countless circumstances and people and experiences and small irritations whose sole mission is it is to cause us to suffer externalizing suffering also rather in some ways relieves us of the need to see more deeply doesn't it we don't really have to look at the way in which we may be participating in the process of suffering and sometimes it feels more satisfying to blame than it does to question of course sometimes we take a very different extreme a different very different position where we actually blame ourselves and we say we are the central cause of suffering there are the endless ways in which we annoy and disappoint ourselves there are the ways in which our history and our conditioning and our entanglements that we're so much to blame for cause us to suffer now what would happen for us in relationship to suffering if we simply withdrew all blame if we let go of the avenue of attributing fault if it was nobody's fault what would happen if we were able to do this is that we would be invited to simply look and stay present with the actuality and the nature of suffering 
beneath confusion, beneath the layers of anger and judgment and greed, and so many of the conflicts and aversions we experience in our lives, what do we find? Well, surprise, surprise, there's tanha. There is craving. There is unquenchable thirst that we are seeking to quench. The craving that does arise when we get what we don't want. The craving that arises when we don't get what we do want. The craving that arises when we are not satisfied even when we find what we want. The eternal discontent of there never being quite enough. What do we see beneath restlessness and craving? We see fear and anxiety. A Christian mystic once said that anxiety is the mood of ignorance. And it's important to understand that in the Buddhist tradition, ignorance is not an insult. You know, it's not a way of pointing the finger and saying, you know, you're ignorant. Ignorance is not understanding the nature of reality. And anxiety is the mood of ignorance. Now, it does seem that anxiety is as close to separation as our breath is to our lives. Anxiety leads us to flee from ourselves and to flee from stillness into restlessness, into wandering, wandering into wanting, always seeking for completeness, for happiness, for freedom, and often finding frustration. Attempting to alleviate this chronic restlessness or anxiety through craving is likened to drinking salt water in order to try and quench our thirst. The presence of craving, it is like an insatiable appetite. I don't know if you've ever broken a limb and had a cast on it and you get an itch inside your cast. And you get really ingenious at ways to try and relieve that itch. And he pokes sticks down your cast. And you, you do all this stuff, and you never seem to find the right place. Once I was teaching a family retreat here, and we were talking on this matter of craving with the children. And I asked the children, I said, what do you think happens? What do you think you get if you go through life just endlessly wanting? And this little guy, about five years old, he piped up and he said, trouble. <laughs> and that's about it, isn't it? So what you get is trouble. In the Tibetan tradition, they have this, this realm uh, that they call the realm of the hungry ghost. And it's the realm, basically, of craving. You know. And the hungry ghosts are depicted as the, these, these beings who have these most enormous bellies. You know, so they're really hungry. You know. They have these enormous appetites to match these enormous bellies. And then they have these tiny throats and these little pinpricks for mouths. You know. So that no matter how much they're kind of consuming, it can never match this emptiness inside. Now, can you imagine, can any of you imagine reaching a place in your life where you were able to retire from the appetite of craving, 
when you had every single pleasurable sensation, experience, and gratification that it's possible for you to imagine, where every single desire was fulfilled and totally satisfied, and not only did you get everything that you'd ever wanted that was pleasant, but that those pleasant sensations also stayed intriguing for you, that they also stayed interesting, that they never changed. It's a, a good story, if I don't mind saying so myself. <laughs> there was a man who died and found himself in a beautiful place, surrounded by every conceivable comfort. A white-jacketed man came to him and said, you may have anything you choose, any food, any pleasure, any kind of entertainment. The man was delighted, and for days he sampled all the delicacies and experiences of which he dreamed on earth. But one day he grew bored with all of it, and calling the attendant to him, he said, I'm tired of all of this. I need something to do. What kind of work can you give me? And the attendant sadly shook his head and replied, I'm sorry, sir, that's the one thing we can't do for you. There's no work for you here. To which the man answered, that's a fine thing. I might as well be in hell. The attendant said softly, where do you think you are? <laughs> now, it is interesting that, you know, sometimes in this life we actually do get what we want, things we really long for. And yet, we often also really lose interest. They really can lose the power to satisfy us. And so instead of learning from that experience, our desires become more sophisticated. Our craving becomes more complex. We see this in meditation. You know, on the first day of this retreat, you know, when everything felt pretty crazy to you and your mind and body was really agitated, you know, you probably had the thought, oh, all I want is a little calm. Well, maybe today you got some. Has anybody seen the mind that says, this is a little boring? <laughs> How about a grand experience? <laughs> you know? So maybe you get that, and then you go to a group, and somebody has a better one. <laughs> And doesn't that give us something new to do the next day? You know, I knew that one wasn't good enough. We wander on and on. Now, a close friend to craving, of course, is its companion aversion. Sadly, the world is uninformed about our appetites and that there is much that comes that actually we don't want that comes unbidden to us. We can find ourselves just as much as we spend in that land of craving. We can spend a, an equal amount of time in perpetual litigation with the world, with the feelings, with the body experiences, which the mind states that have come to us unbidden, finding ourselves in those situations that we haven't chosen and that we can't control. And then we say, this is happening to me. 
life is making me suffer. We are a little bit in the wind with this plane and pleasure number, you know. They come and they go. They are part of life. Just try to hold on to pleasure. Try to push away pain. It makes, means that our lives actually require so much struggle when we do that. Our lives require so much effort when we are in that place of endlessly trying to hold on to pleasure and push away pain. It is like a tug of war. And what happens to us in that position is that our well-being, our sense of who we are, begins to be governed and dictated by the impact that sensations have on our consciousness. This is sad. This is very sad. The power that those sensations appear to have, of course, is the power that we have given to them. We give the power to sensations through misunderstanding to determine our sense of well-being and happiness. And we lose sight of what we surrender in that transaction, how much we surrender the qualities of spaciousness, of equanimity and freedom. The Buddha spoke about three kinds of craving that have an impact on our lives. One of them is the craving for pleasure, the pleasant sensation, whether it's a form of sensory impression or experience or whatever. He spoke about the craving that takes the form of the craving for becoming, becoming one thing or another, whether it's the desire and the investment in becoming the president or becoming enlightened. Both can be equally places of suffering. And he spoke about the craving for non-becoming, the craving to get rid of things, the craving to make things end. Now those three forms of craving, for the pleasant sensation, for becoming, and for non-becoming, basically keep us pretty busy. They keep us pretty busy. The force of craving is like a saboteur in our lives. It steals space and it is built upon fear. I'd like to just tell you a little anecdote from my life and I'd like to apologize to in advance to anybody who's in the insurance industry. I don't mean to stereotype or make generalizations. Anyway, I have this guy in my life this insurance salesman who I meet with once a year, you know, and I really enjoy it. I've, I've come to enjoy it so much that, you know, I even initiate the meetings. And I've known him for about 10 years, I guess. He discovered me about 10 years ago as a potential person who needed a lot of protection. <laughs> so every year he comes to me and he tries to sell me some kind of insurance policy. And our conversations usually begin by him saying, I don't want you to think the unimaginable. <laughs> you know, which immediately gets my attention, you know. And then he says, but imagine what would happen, which of course it probably never will. He says, but imagine what would happen if your house burnt down, your husband died, 
your car crashed, you lost your job, and your children got sick. You know, my, eye, my eyes get wider and wider, you know, because every year he seems to think of some new disaster that's going to befall me, you know, that I've never even considered, you know. I mean, he talks about earthquakes under my house, you know, something I never even considered in England, you know, this is not California. <laughs> so my eyes get bigger and bigger, and, you know, and then, of course, he tries to tell me how I can protect myself against life. And it struck me, recently I was speaking with him, and it struck me about how it would be if the Buddha was in my living room. And he was meeting with the Buddha, and he said, aging, sickness, and death? Well, we can do something for that, you know? You know, suffering? Well, I've got just the right policy for you. You know the cause of suffering? You don't have to experience that. And so, Here's this whole kind of life, you know, and this whole kind of relationship that seems to be built upon fear. His job is to scare me, and by scaring me, ex somehow accelerate this craving mode. And it's an interesting kind of interaction, because I'm sure we all have that kind of interaction in our life, but it's interesting to see the way what happens to us actually if we get into that story, if we buy into fear, what actually happens to our consciousness? You know, I think Mark Twain, I think it was Mark Twain who once said, you know, the worst moments of my life never happened. <laughs> but you know, we can imagine them all. You know, imagine, you know, what happens to, well, experience what happens to us. You've probably he had it here, you know, you've probably got into some pretty disaster modes over the last few days, you know, of all the unimaginable things that could happen. And what happens when we get into fear and how much craving is a reaction to that? Reflect upon what happens to us when we're in the grip of craving, when we're in the grip of fear of wanting to get something or wanting to get rid of something, and how our vision contracts. You know, and we, get re we can get remarkably concentrated in those moments, there's no doubt. But it's an unwise concentration, isn't it? You can feel it's an unwise concentration because it leads us to close off. It leads us to close off to other people. It leads us to close off to ourselves. And that closing off in itself is suffering. You can feel that. It truly is suffering, that state of contractedness. But it's almost like a suffering that we're willing to ignore because we see it in some perverse way as being in the service of something better. But it's not. Suffering is in the service of suffering. Being in the grip of that craving or that contractedness of fear certainly closes us off to compassion. I mean, can we really... How much space do we have for other people, for the world, when we are entangled in wanting? It's an interesting thing to track. You know, sometimes it's helpful to look at what happens for you when you're waiting in the lunch line. You know, and there's about 10 people there, or you know, you're, you're maybe you're really near the back, and there's this whole line of people. I don't know if you've ever experienced people talk about this kind of anxiety that comes up, you know? Like, what if there's not enough when I get there? 
you know. And our relationship to other people in that moment, all those people in front of us, were basically their obstacles, you know. <laughs> They're just getting in the way. You know, they really, you know, our happiness would be about them somehow disappearing or them having enough compassion to come behind us. But we close off, we get so contracted when we get so focused in this level of craving and wanting. But we're equally not very compassionate to ourselves in those moments. One of my first teachers said to me that letting go is an act of compassion for yourself. This is a very profound teaching for me. To see that the way in which through our willingness to disentangle and to let go, we actually allow openness and awareness and compassion to emerge. That through our willingness to step out of this contractedness and holding, we allow sensitivity and trust and balance to emerge. And those really are the qualities that allow us to see the illusoriness of fear and separation. In the Tao it says, the secret waits for, those, for eyes unclouded by longing. Now in this practice we learn the art of being still and the art of being equally present with all things. And we begin to see that craving is an energy. It is the, ener the energy of desire. And that the very nature of this energy of craving is to keep us moving. It compels us often to want to jump into the next moment. When we're in the for in the caught in the force of that energy, it feels very difficult to be where we are. Because the very nature of that energy is to grasp for where we are not to reach for, where we're, for somewhere else, to the place, to the moment, to the experience we are not in. Instead of really learning to turn towards this moment to discover the vastness and richness and completeness we seek for, the energy of craving makes us reach for the next moment, for the better moment, for the ideal moment, for the perfect moment. And we're often convinced that there is such a thing. And it's also interesting just to track that here in the day, what that energy does to us. You know, how as we eat breakfast, we think about lunch. You know, how when we sit, we think about how wonderful it will be when the sitting ends and we can walk. It's another moment. How when we walk, we think, oh great, I can hardly wait maybe to sit again. They, uh, as read uh, once more from my wisdom source of Newsweek, this story, of, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to Disneyland, but it's, I've been there several times. And uh, there's this slogan they have where they say that Disneyland is the place where happiness never ends. <laughs> and one day there was, you know, and it, look, you know, there's a lot of their ads really supporting that. You never see so many teeth in your whole life as you see at Disneyland. <laughs> and then one of their, one of the, a reporter once went to Disneyland and he overheard Mickey Mouse talking to Donald Duck. 
And if you've ever been to Disneyland, you know, Mickey Mouse is the kind of the grand symbol of happiness. He's got a smile to beat all smiles. And he overheard Mickey Mouse talking to Donald Duck in this supposedly ideal, perfect world where happiness never ends. And Mickey was saying to Donald, he said, you know, Donald, he said, I got to get some, my, some overtime in. I just don't have enough money to pay my therapist at the moment. <laughs> said, Bruh. When we're in the midst of craving, we always feel that where we are is not enough. It's unacceptable to us. You know, Baker Roshi once said that an enlightened person is one who always has what they need. I, I find that a wonderful line. Whether they're sitting in the subway or on a mountaintop or alone or in a crowd, an enlightened person always has what they need. Because their richness and their happiness and their freedom is not governed by sensation or by experience, but flows from forthwith from within themselves, flows from a well of deep wisdom and understanding within themselves of what is true. And in that understanding, there is nothing to be added and nothing to be taken away, no matter what occurs or what is encountered. So an enlightened person always has what they need. Even the idea of something being imperfect does not arise, because the very notions of perfect and imperfect become irrelevant because there is simply the suchness of what, what is in this moment. And resting in the fullness of that wisdom, there is nothing that can be disturbed, everything that can be embraced. Rinpoche once said, profound and tranquil, free from complexity, uncompounded, luminous clarity, beyond the mind of conceptual ideas, this is the depth of mind of the awakened ones. In this there is not a thing to be removed, nor anything that needs to be added. It is merely the immaculate, looking naturally at itself. If an enlightened person is one who always has what they need, then it's not too big a stretch of the imagination. To say that a definition of an unenlightened person is one who feels that they rarely have what they need. A craving is the active face of anxiety and separation, trying to gain and grasp, trying to camouflage and distance us from the painful and underlying feeling of there not being enough, of not enough, of not being enough, of not having enough. As long as we are tied to this restless dance of craving, of being pulled and pushed, of getting and getting rid of, then it's really hard for us to be still long enough to really see whether that's true, whether it's actually true that there's not enough, that we are not enough. Learning to be still is about learning to start to get in touch 
with that feeling and question whether it's true. Now perhaps it's not true. Perhaps this whole notion of not enough is not actually true. Perhaps we always have what we need. Perhaps there is always enough. What we learn to do in our meditation here is to pause and to step out of the whirlwind of pursuit and rejection and to really look at these assumptions that we have around need and around there not being enough. These assumptions that we sometimes carry that our happiness and well-being rests upon satisfying the momentary and restless appetites of our craving. In the Buddhist tradition, there's this wonderful story of Angulimala. Angulimala was a very feared, well-known murderer who lived in the time of the Buddha. And Angulimala had this mission in life to murder a thousand people. And every time he murdered someone, he would cut off one of their... This is kind of a gory story in the beginning. He would cut off one of their fingers and he would hang it in a garland around, their ne- around his neck. And so, of course, the more murders he committed, the more people who saw him with this garland of fingers, the more fear did he evoke in the countryside where he lived. Anyway, he went on his way and he murdered 999 people. And there was one murder still to commit in order to fulfill his goal. And he decided he was going to murder the Buddha. And so he hid in the woods and he, until the Buddha was coming. And the Buddha was warned not to go on this road where Angulimala hung out. So it was a bad, bad idea. But the Buddha said, never mind, you know, it's where I'm traveling. And he went along this road where Angulimala was hiding in the woods. And Angulimala saw him and, you know, set his sights on his fingers. And the Buddha at that time, it's said in this story, performed one of his psychic powers. And as Angulimala started chasing him, running as quickly as he could, that the Buddha kept walking very slowly, very calmly, and yet Angulimala couldn't catch him. And he was racing after the Buddha, and the just didn't get any closer. And so he started shouting at the Buddha, why don't you stop? Why don't you stop? And the Buddha turned to him, And he said, Angulimala, I have stopped. He said, I have stepped out of the wheel of craving and the wheel of harmfulness. I have stopped, Angulimala. Why don't you stop? And of course, as in all good Buddhist stories, (laughs) Angulimala listened to these words and understood very deeply what the Buddha said and awakened to what was true. We learn or we begin perhaps to explore what this stopping means for us in meditation. We pause. Now we see when we learn to stop, it doesn't mean that the storm around us stops. It doesn't mean that our minds stop moving and our bodies stop feeling or that our world stops in any way. No, it continues. 
But our capacity to stop, to step out of the wheel of craving and the wheel of harmfulness, it makes the forces of craving and wanting, the ways in which we depart from ourselves, it makes those forces very visible to us. And held within our capacity to stop, there is a tremendous wisdom that truly illuminates the moment. We truly begin to see what is the nature of suffering and what is the cause of suffering. But in stopping, we also discover more than that because we begin to discover the source of well-being, of contentment, of spaciousness. We begin to discover the calmness found within our capacity to welcome and to embrace the pleasant and the unpleasant equally. We discover the unshakable equanimity that can be found within that willingness to welcome, where our sense of ourselves, our consciousness, our sense of who we are, is no longer dictated by sensation, by what is happening, but our sense of being is born much more from our capacity to be with. In that equanimity and stepping out of craving, we do not enter into this endless and perpetual cycle of becoming this and that, not becoming, not trying to fix anything, not trying to get rid of anything. We actually discover that we can be present with all things. In being still and being awake and being at home in all moments, we also discover that there never was not enough, that we always have what we need. We always have what we need for sensitivity, for inspiration, for appreciation, for understanding. We always have what we need to learn in this very moment. This is the wisdom we seek to discover in this practice, to step out of the wheel of craving, the wheel of wandering, to wake up from the dream, to wake up from the dream. And there is only one better moment in which we do that, and that's the moment that we're in. We have a couple of moments quietly. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.